What, what I'd like to do this morning is speak to you as we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're showing, uh, it's going to be speaking about showing proper submission to our employers. Uh, I don't know if this applies to everybody here, but there's some great truth that we can all take home with us. Um, it definitely speaks to me and myself um, in this. I'm preaching to myself because I'm, um, I'm an employee to um, a company that produces milk, and um, I'm thankful and grateful for that. And I'm privileged. So I know in some way or form or fashion it, you could take something home here as we look into this great text. If anything, the, the text underscores and what Peter is getting to is submission. It's all about submission to God. Submission to God. That's his thrust. That's his, that's his direction. So please open your Bibles with me as we come together for the study of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me say as a footnote as you turn there, that is such a blessing to go through this wonderful book, this wonderful epistle, to study God's holy Word under the Apostle Peter, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know it's God's Word, right? And He used men as holy men of God moved by the Holy Spirit. Also keep in mind that the Apostle Peter in the Gospels, as you well know, was a different man. Uh, When we see him in the Gospels, he's walking with the Lord Jesus for three years and we see him at times very arrogant. He's out there. We even see him uh, rebuking our Lord Jesus Christ quite often. He was always bold, wasn't he? Very bold. He's the head apostle. Jesus chose him as the head apostle. He was usually the spokesman for the other apostles. And you see him speaking out of turn quite often, and then he's rebuked quite often. Jesus constantly is rebuking him as Peter at times tried to rebuke the Lord. Could you imagine trying to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ? No. But after Pentecost, we also see that he was a completely different apostle. He was changed, wasn't he? He becomes transformed. And the Holy Spirit does this in his life. And after Pentecost, uh, it's almost like a completely different person that we see in the Gospels. What's encouraging to me about this is that he's not changed overnight. God does this work work of grace in his heart over time. No wonder he says in his, his epistle, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow. There's growth has to take place. And he understands that. He's a simple fisherman. He's not the theologian as Paul is. But we learn a great deal from this simple, godly man. It's only these two epistles that he wrote. Very brief, but very powerful, very practical. What I love about it, Peter is so practical. Um, We also know that the Apostle Paul, speaking of Paul publicly rebuked Peter one time for hypocrisy. A lot of times people, we have a tendency to look at the Apostle Paul as the hero in that. I highly esteem the Apostle Peter for taking the rebuke publicly. Can you imagine being a head apostle and walked with the Lord and Paul didn't have that privilege like Peter did and yet... Peter was out of line. He was eating Jews and it was the gospel that was at stake here. What he was doing was hypocritical uh, for the sake of the gospel. And Paul saw this and Paul understood this and Paul lovingly but publicly rebuked him. And what I love about Peter is he took the rebuke and humility. Can you imagine the humility that it took? And, 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 And now we see him 
Here, he's never lost his holy boldness. He is now tempered. He's tempered sweetly with gentleness and meekness and most important, humility. Those are the marks of a true regenerated person, isn't it? He's changed by God. We see an apostle who is truly submitted to God. He's submitted to God and he, ha- he could tell us a lot about submission, can he? And this is what comes to my mind is uh, we look into this epistle, especially First Peter. So notice with me in this wonderful book that we've been studying, it's about submission, isn't it? It's about submission. So may the Spirit of God that taught the Apostle Peter be our teacher this morning. The same, isn't that wonderful to know that the same Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth that taught the Apostle Peter, these truths can teach us. And as we study this together in this wonderful book together, we go to God together and we see it's the same God. It's the, now we hear the words of the Apostle Peter as the Spirit of God was breathing upon him and teaching us. So there's a great purpose for this letter. So our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. I'm taking on just three verses, and I think that's quite enough. And then, uh, Lord willing, next week what I'd like to do is break it up uh, go to verse 21 down to 25, and it actually speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ being our perfect example of submission. And we're going to have communion, Lord willing, next week. And I think that's a perfect time where the perfect text is speaking that Jesus is that perfect example for submission. Because if you really want to know, as Fanny Crosby was. So many people take that wrong. But I believe Fanny Crosby is not talking about the Christian's perfect submission. He's, she's talking about Jesus' perfect submission. Only Jesus had perfect submission. Uh, I, I love that. Jesus, perfect, perfect submission, perfect delight. I'm my Savior. And, and, and it's so wonderful. Um, well, I'm reading from the NASB. So hear the word of the living God. In verse 18 we begin. And Peter says this, Servants. Now you may have some translations that says slaves. We're going to look at that in a minute. Um, Some says servants, some say slaves. But servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Another translation says um, to those that are perverted to those that are perverted. For this finds favor, for if the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Let's stop right there and let's Ask the Lord to bless this time as we seek His face and look into His Word together this morning and ask His Holy Spirit to teach us. Our Father in heaven, as we bow into Your presence, Lord, we do not take this lightly. Save us from apathy, O God. Teach us Your way. We would pray and we would ask, O Lord, and I speak... As for myself here, as we look into Your Holy Word within this hour and study it, Lord, may Your blessed Holy Spirit look into our hearts as we search the Scriptures together. Sanctify us with Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And may we all leave here today with a greater desire, Lord, to be doers of Thy Word and just not hearers. And we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. But what I'd like to do in this introduction, just kind of recap what the previous text and the Scriptures are saying to lead us up to this point because I believe it's very important to understand the whole picture of what Peter is getting driving at, what he's getting to. And as... Um, a chapter context, the Apostle Peter 
gets very specific about what it means to live as God's set-apart people. That's what he's really been looking at a great deal in chapter 2. God's people are set apart. They're holy. They're a peculiar people. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You see that in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then he says, for you were... Once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I really appreciate from this, um, this whole chapter is that Peter is very evangelistic, isn't he? He's very evangelistic. He's very practical. Uh, Christ Jesus is the foundation stone of the spiritual house that God is building. Uh, look very... Quickly with me to verse 4 and 5. says that in coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, but also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, there we see that, so we come to Jesus. I love that, underscores everything that he's saying here. We come to Jesus. We come to Him as to um, a living stone. He is that stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice. He's precious in the sight of God. And you also are living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Isn't that beautiful, the way He says that in worship, this is our life, we're set apart from God. So we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus. I believe we need to, to underscore that as we come to Jesus. He is the author, the finisher of our faith. He is the one that we look to. We don't look to men, men will fail us, but Jesus will never fail us. He, and we got, come to Him as to a living stone. The stone is alive, He's alive and risen from the dead. Then if you notice in verse um, 11 and 12, it tells us that the believers in Christ pretty much is how to live when we come to Jesus. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, fleshly desires which wage war against the soul. We're in warfare, aren't we? Uh, We see that. Even as a Christian, we war against the fleshly lust. That wage against the soul. So we are to abstain from it. Lord, help us to be obedient to that command. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, keep your behavior. Underline that, your behavior. He's talking about behavior here. Excellent. Keep it excellent among the Gentiles. The way we walk, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we treat one another means something, doesn't it? So that when the and the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice with me there that the way we behave means a lot to our testimony and to the name of the Lord. And this is what he's driving at. So we must engage in battle with our selfishness and our selfish desires and the desire to sin. We must mortify the deeds of the flesh, as Paul would say, and to abstain from these fleshly lusts. This includes submitting to human authorities, as Peter goes on to say, no matter how evil or how harsh they are, we are to submit. The only time, the only exception is when they have something, a command against God's Word. We know that we are not to submit in that case because it is better to obey God in that. And, we, and, and that is the, what the Word of God says. It means, actually, in this text, it means the enduring suffering as Christ did for, for our sake and he, as He died on the cross. So Jesus is always the perfect example in this, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next week. So, it is significant to note that in the New Testament, it gives more instruction to servants 
than to kings. Now, isn't that interesting? There's more instructions to servants than to kings. Why? Why? Well, number one, I believe, would be because many of the early believers were servants or slaves in that time period. The, I believe I remember reading in a the commentary there was over... Um, uh, there was a million? Uh, six, maybe six million? Six million slaves? I believe I'm correct about that. What I remember seeing in my mind's eye. should have wrote it down. But about six million slaves in general. And the Scripture shows that most of the slaves in that time period were Christians. They were Christians. Um, from the middle or lower, lower strata of society. And, uh, and if you notice in verse 13, it's very key. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. It's not for our sake. It's submission to God. It's for the Lord's sake. It's for His sake. To every human institution, whether to a king, or as to one in authority, or to governors as sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers, and to the praise of those who do right. And then in verse, And He says that in verse 14 as well. So notice in verse 15... I believe is a very key verse. This is really the key verse to the whole passage. If we don't understand this verse here, we're going to miss the whole point. He says, for such is the will of God. It's God's will. So, it is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So, by living a godly and holy life, we silence the critics to those who speak evil against Christianity. So when we live godly and holy and Christ-like, we silence those who criticize Christianity. There's nothing more powerful than a godly, holy life. Ravenhill said it like this, the greatest example is a living example. And that is so true. We need those kind of living examples today, don't we? More than ever before. So our passage is addressed to domestic servants. But the principles here really apply to employees of any kind. That's the principle. The basic appeal is to submit to the master with all respect. Respect is a key word. It's not our concern to have rights in this world, is it? I was listening to John MacArthur and he gets into this and I'll spare you quotes and from him. I got one quote from him, by the way, but uh, of a long quote, and I was reading his commentary, but he was talking about people's rights, people's rights. Nowadays in America, especially, everybody wants their rights. But when you're a Christian, when you're born again, we see that we come to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a bond slave to Christ. So that means that we have been bought with a costly price. We have been... Uh, bought with a valuable price, a precious price, and that is the blood of Jesus. So we don't have rights of our own anymore. Our rights are actually being given over to the Lord Jesus Christ because He's our Master. So we submit to the authority, first of all, to God. But when we do submit to the authorities here, we're basically showing our submission to God. See... And we do it for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. No matter how harsh and how unfair we are treated in this world, and by the way, we will be treated pretty, pretty poorly if you're a true born-again believer. It says all that they live, all that they that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. No ways around it. Jesus said, if, if the world hates you, know that they hated me before it hated you. They will persecute you. So we might as well just accept that truth that we're not going to be liked from the world. It is a built-in fact also that in life, in any society of organization, that there must be authority on the one hand and there has to be obedience to that authority on the other. And if we rebel against that, we're showing within our hearts that we have rebellion in us against authority. And we also realize this, that God is the one that places the people in authority there. Whether they be ugly, mean, or good, or bad, or whatever. It's delegated authority. Amen. And God is the one that is sovereign over all, and He's the one that places that person in leadership there. And a lot of times, 
If it's an evil person in judgment and in place there, it is a judgment. And that's exactly what's going on in our nation now. It is happening. It's sad, and we need to pray. So our response is that we pray, but we must submit. Now, again, the only time we do not submit is if it's opposed to the Word of God. God's words first. So, if someone's an authority on one hand, there has to be obedience to that authority on the other hand. It is for any servant's good, own good to submit to his master or to his boss. The principle's there. This is very practical. I like what Paul Washer said. He said, Submission to God is not radical Christianity. It's basic Christianity. And that is so true. This is Christianity 101, is to submit to authority. Otherwise, he would not have employment if this person is non-submissive to his boss. If we go into a workplace and we work for a boss and he tells us to do something, and say, well, I don't like to do that. I'm not going to do that. Hey, meet me in the office. I just may write you up. Used to be years ago when I was working, they could just tell you to clock out and go home. Now, because of so many different um, legalities, you got to have strike one, strike two, strike three, and they got to document everything, you know, and all protect themselves. But you know how that goes. But it is much more important also for a Christian to submit to authority. Amen? There's a reason for that because more than his paycheck is involved, that's not the situation because of just losing his paycheck. His personal testimony depends on it. And can I go a step further than just the personal testimony? He represents Jesus Christ and the name of the Lord is tagged on him. And behind his personal testimony is the name of God, which is far more important. Far more important. The believer represents Jesus Christ, right? We are representative of Christ. We always need to keep this in mind. I need to remind myself of this every day when I go to work. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, I put on a uniform, and that uniform says, I represent this company, Mayfield. I am the face of Mayfield. But I also need to remember, as I go to work out there, I represent Christ as well. Because I do my job unto the Lord. So our text gives to us two important points we need to remember. In verse 18, we see the mandate for submission. In verse 19 and 20, the motive for submission. The mandate for submission and then the motive for submission. Now, that's not original with me. I got that from John MacArthur, and I praise God for his simple outline. So I thought, well, I'll just use it. I'm giving him credit for it, so okay. And I'm going to preach from it. Well, let's look at, uh, let's begin. Let's look at the mandate for submission. The mandate for submission. Verse 18 says it, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, to those who are perverse. You know, think of it. After commanding all Christians to submit to every human authority, including emperors and kings and governors, the Apostle Peter specifically says the same to Christian servants. To servants. Or, as some translations would say, slaves. Now, as I was studying this, this is very interesting. Different commentators had different views on whether this is to a servant or does it apply to slaves. Well, in that time period, there were many slaves, as I've already mentioned. And most of them were Christians. But is it speaking to... To servants, is the text, is the original word study text saying servants or slaves? Well, as I was doing this word study, I found out this. It's interesting to note that I learned, and I personally learned a great deal as I was studying this, and I'm going to pass it to you, that we can all benefit from this, because the word used here is not the Greek word doula, or as some Greek words as slave, bond slave is doulos. It's not doulos or doula. The classic term 
for slaves, which is the classic term, but rather the original Greek word here in this particular text is oiketeia. Now, I probably butchered that. If I had a Greek teacher here, he said, no. I'm, look, I'm just a simple Bible student. I'm not a theologian. But oiketeia, that means it's the best translated as servants. So it's not doulos. That being said, the line between servants and slaves was very blurry in Peter's time. So slavery had really little to do with the race, as modern society would think or process, more to do, and it had more to do with economics and social class. The Greek word servants is from the root meaning. And it means house. House. And this was basic term for household servants. Now, I went to this, this scripture, Acts 10, 7. You can go there if you like. It's just one verse of scripture I want to point out to you. But if you go to this in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 7, it says that when the angel who, had, who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants. Some translations actually says bond slaves. But it's a household servant. It's a household servant. He summoned two of his household servants. And and a devout soldier of those were his personal attendants. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary um, says this of this text. Most of those servants, quote, most of those servants served in a house or a home under an estimate, uh, I'm sorry, estate owner with duties from their being farmers who plowed the owner's field to doctors who cared for their families and medical needs, end quote. So you kind of have a summary there of the time in the Old Testament economy of servants and slaves. Yes, there were many slaves. Let me add that, like I said, just because here this particular Greek word says household servants, it doesn't mean there was no slaves at the time. We do know that there were many slaves. And again, I, it can apply that this really just would reinforce the, the text because if he's saying household servants, or even if it does say slaves, that they are to be submissive to their masters, even if they are treated harshly, as hard as that may be. New Testament economy in that period, like I said, had many, many slaves, over six million. Matter of fact, most of them were Christians. Therefore, Peter basically comes here and he gives a command. Now, this is important. The command to them is, be submissive. Be submissive. That means a lot. This is a present passive participle. A present passive participle with the sense of a present imperative. It's a command. So what he's saying here Be submissive. You are to line up underneath that authority. It's a military term to that master, to that one that's an authority over you. Whether they were servants or slaves, they were to continually be submissive to their masters and for the masters, um, for them. And the word master in the Greek is despot ea. Despot ea from which we get the English word despot, a despot, a tyrant that, deri- that derives from that, uh, who ha- one who had absolute ownership and complete control over them. Now think of that. We don't have that kind of... I don't know. I have run across bosses that were tyrannical, you know, and despots. You know what I mean. And I tell you what, it's, it's real easy to get in the flesh and fight up against this. 
because especially when they hit some nerves and they do things, they've crossed the bounds and you start thinking, hey, I'm a human being. I'm, a, I'm your employee. What are you treating me so harshly? But you know the Word of God says here, you don't rebel back. Keep in mind, we are representing Jesus Christ. Obedience should not vary according to the temperament of the employer. Amen? Anyone can submit to an employer who is good to them. Anybody, any, anybody can submit to a, a, a boss that is kind to them. That's easy. Especially one that's gentle. And I, don't get me wrong, I, I love to work under bosses like that. They're great. I, actually, I have a supervisor now. He is so laid back and he's, he's very kind and good and he, he shows no partiality and he, he, he's not overbearing over us and I just praise God for that. But then times in my years being in retail since 1983, I've had some pretty mean tyrants. <laughs> Believers in Jesus Christ. I, I mean, this is all about us representing Christ and being submissive to Him because believers in Christ are called to go the extra mile. To go beyond that which is given us the duty to and to be respectful and obedient even to those that are harsh to us. Think of that. A mean, despot, tyrant of a boss coming down on us. And then you answer with a very soft word. Yes, sir. And he's thinking something different about him or her. Something different. Amen. It's a bone breaker. The overbearing boss, right? We could talk all about that. I can give you personal illustrations. I'm going to stay away from that. David was really... I was listening to Pastor John MacArthur's sermon on this on the way here, and I couldn't help but think he... if you get a chance, if you can tap into grace to you, go to this text. And he talks about, from 1 Samuel, how David was chosen and God had His hand on King David. But you remember many times that... Um, you remember when David was the chosen king of Israel and God chose him. See, the people of Israel chose Saul because they wanted to be like other nations. He was handsome and tall. and Oh, he had the looks and let's... Choose King Solomon. God said, I'll give you what you want. God let him take the king they wanted. He wasn't God's king. God had his king, little shepherd boy, keeping sheep, very humble. And then Samuel, God spoke to Samuel. That's, that's the one. Go to Jesse. He's got these sons. This one right here. That's God's man. Samuel anoints him, picks him. Hand, God handpicks him. And you know the story later on. David triumphs and battles against Goliath. And, and then Saul sees this and then, then they start celebrating in the streets, dancing before the Lord that um, Saul has killed the thousands, but David has killed the ten thousands. And Saul became very angry. He was jealous. And you know the story as time went by. And Samuel there, if you remember reading the story, it's very rich. There's many times that, see, Saul wanted to kill David. And David at times had opportunity to get back at Saul. But David wouldn't do it. Because he respected him. Because he was the king. Even though he could have taken Saul out. He did not do it because he was being submissive to God. He left vengeance with the Lord. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. So the kind of behavior that we are to show and demonstrate before the world stands out, doesn't it? It does. People see that. Jesus Himself gives us the rules, really, for kingdom living. Go with me to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to Luke today because this text is a little bit different than the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, This Luke chapter 6 is... You might find this interesting when you have read this. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. 
there's a very good possibility that Jesus preached the same sermon twice. He preached it once. That's known in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. This is known as Sermon on the Plateau. Sermon on the Plateau. It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but the words are a somewhat difference. Jesus gives woes in it, as you will see. But notice with me, this sermon is very similar, as I said. And this sermon is called Sermon on the Plateau. And, but notice what the Lord says in this powerful sermon, starting with uh, verse 20. I like to read all the way through because it has a lot to do with what Peter is saying. Notice in verse 20, let's look at the Beatitudes first. Beatitude. It has a lot to do with our attitude. And turning, the Word of God says in verse 20, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. Peter is saying pretty much this is where Peter gets this. For the sake of the Son of Man, for the Lord's sake, be glad in that day. Be glad in that day. I believe Matthew says, be exceedingly glad. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, that's the Beatitudes, but he gives some woes there that Matthew doesn't really give that. Kind of gives some insight there, doesn't it? Because the prophet would give a blessing or a woe. A blessing or a curse. In Matthew, in Sermon on the Mount, it's just the will of blessing. And Luke kind of looks, gives us this uh, of woes that Jesus is given here too as well. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Child of God has no rights, right? Treat others the same way you want to treat to them, uh, want them to treat you. If you want those, if, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to the sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. And do good and lend and expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You see what Jesus is saying? We're never more like God when we're like this. When we love our enemies, we do good to those that mistreat us. Anybody can love those that love you. Jesus says, love the unlovable. Love those that hate you. 
love those that are mean to you and harsh. And you think, how? How can I do this? And I used to think, Lord, how? And it's like, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's supernatural, isn't it? No one can do this in their own strength. No one can forgive like this in their own strength. No one can love like this in their own strength, in their own power. It takes the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, and we must confess that to Him. It helps me, makes me think of Corey Tim Boom. You know the story, how she knew this one particular German, Nazi, that killed her sister, and he supposedly came to faith, and he met her. She, uh, they met together in church, and, and um, her sister Betsy was put to death by this particular German, and, and she, this Nazi. And she said, I, I, I can't love this guy. She, he did such horrible things to my sister. That would be hard, wouldn't it? But you know, and I love her simplicity in telling this story. And in such a practical way, she, she, said, she said, I just started confessing it to Jesus. Because she says, Jesus knows my heart. I might as well just, just pour it out to Him. Say, I cannot do this. And in her tears and her crying and confession before God, she says, Jesus, I cannot do it. I have no power. I do not like this person. Help me, oh God, to forgive him. And she says it was like the power and the peace of God and the Holy Spirit came upon her in a powerful way. And she remembered the word. And this is God. You know it's God. And it gave a scripture, Romans 5, 1, about having peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it was so powerful. And you know the story, but it, helped, it makes me think of that, that we might as well just take it to God and confess it. And when we are mistreated, Lord, You're the one that can only help me love this person. To love them like You love them. It takes God's power to do that, doesn't it? Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, turn with me to one more reference to Ephesians um, chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Ephesians. This is really good. The Apostle Paul brings this out. In a very similar way, he states um, God's will on this issue. This is God's desire. This is what God wills. So, in the workplace, notice what he says in verse 5. Now, Paul uses the word slaves here. And if I'm not mistaken, that um, in verse 5, the, it is doulos in this particular text. Different servants with Peter, but all the same. We, slaves, servants, is to be obedient, to be submissive. That's what it means. To be submissive means to be obedient. Paul says in verse 5, chapter 6, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. That changes everything, doesn't it? As to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. We're a slave of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service. Good will with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Notice how he keeps saying unto Christ, as unto Christ, unto the Lord. Peter says, for the Lord's sake. And not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. What a beautiful text. And then he has a word for the masters. He doesn't leave the masters out, does he? And masters do the same things to them. And give up threatening. Don't threaten them. And knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. He's the real master. And there is no partiality with Him. Oh, don't you love that? God is no respecter of person. So in the workplace, employees are to submit to employers as if they were serving Jesus Christ Himself. We must keep that in mind, especially if we're mistreated. Well, let's go to the second point here, the motive for submission. The motive for submission. The motive for submission is given in verse 19 through 20. Back to... Um, 1 Peter, find my place here, 
chapter 2. The text is really wonderful, isn't it? Let me read it again. Verse 19 and 20. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, and he says, and remember what he says in verse 20, he get, this is his commentary of what he heard Jesus speaking. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with it, endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Great text, isn't it? Beloved, when the Christian suffers... In, Unjustly, We need to keep this in mind. Let's never forget that he wins God's approval. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Remember, we're strangers, we're aliens, we're not going to fit in in this world anyway. Matter of fact, when the Gentiles and the, those that are lost outside of Jesus Christ, dead in their sins, they're going to look at us quite strange, especially when we love the unlovable. <laughs> God's approval is really all that matters. God is well pleased when He finds us so conscious of our relation to Him that we endure un- undeserved pain. That happens quite often, especially with a persecuted church overseas. Without vindicating ourselves, that's hard. The flesh wants to repel against that and wants to rebel against it. Or fighting back. I've had that in me many times. I said, you know, I just need to fight back. It's not worth it. Not worth it. We're not the winner in the end. The Christian can take it. I think about this. The Christian could take it. He could take any kind of abuse. He could take any kind of harsh treatment. And you know, here's, here's the thing that, that, that's so challenging. A lot of times we can externally do something, but our heart is saying something different. My heart is saying, I like to back up in the corner and let him have it. But my heart needs to say, Lord, forgive him. The way he's treating me or the others, and pray for him, and really mean it. Remember Jesus when he was crucified. Oh, have you ever seen such love? Those that nailed him to the cross, and he he prays the first utterance: "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing." He really meant every single word of that. Of course. But this is God in the flesh giving us an example. We're going to look at that more, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, as God wills. But Jesus gave us that example. But the Christian can take it because he's graced. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He has God in him. He's regenerated. He's a different person. He's a new creation. He's transformed. He's a new new creation. And because he has the Spirit of the living God abiding within him, And when we meekly take it from the unjust treatment, what do we display? We are displaying. We're putting on display before the world, an ungodly, heathen world, Jesus Christ. His example. The way He would act. So this supernatural life gains God's approval. And it all will be worth it the first moment when we leave this old world, leave it behind, and we lay down the body, the body is laid down, and absent from the body, present with the Lord, and then we see Jesus face to face. And Don't you long to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the words that we long to hear. It's the greatest words, I believe, we can ever hear. The worst is opposite. Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. That's the most horrifying words. But opposite of that is saying, hearing Jesus say, well done. Good and faithful servant. 
Servant. The only words that really is going to matter for all eternity for us. So the greater blessing is actually for the one who suffers. Go with me to James chapter 1. One more, one more here. James chapter 1. We looked through the book of James. You remember this wonderful chapter? But I believe this, this reference ties right into what Peter is saying. Because James and Peter and John were all there listening to the Master at His feet, right? James chapter 1, 2, and 4. Remember what he said here? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Remember what Peter says? That when you endure it. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, and lacking in nothing. That's what the Apostle James says by the Holy Spirit. A.W. Pink said in his classic book, In the Sovereignty of God, that's a great book, isn't it? I know y'all read it, right? Great book. A quote I have here I wrote down, and I think it's a good reminder. He says this, As one sees the apparent defeat of the right and the triumphing of might and the wrong, it seems as though Satan were getting the better of the conflict. But as one looks above, instead of around, there is plainly visible to the eye of faith a throne. A throne. Then this is our confidence. God is on the throne. Isn't that great? God is on the throne. No matter how ill-treated we are. Amen? Verse 20, Beloved, there is no virtue in patience. That's, that's what Peter, back to verse 20, that's what he's saying. There's, there's no virtue in patience, suffering, I'm sorry, in suffering patiently for our own misdeeds. It's not for our own misdeeds, right? I, I, I know a lot of professing Christians that get persecuted for righteous, not for righteousness sake, but for their own sake. But we want to make sure that we're being persecuted for righteousness sake, then we can have rejoicing toward the Lord in this. Certainly there's no glory for God in it when if someone is being persecuted for their own sake, their own stupidity a lot of times I would say. <laughs> yes, 90%. Amen, Brother Keith. Such suffering would never mark out as a Christian, or make others want to become a Christian, right? Matter of fact, it disdains Christianity when someone is being persecuted for their own misdeeds. But suffering patiently for the Lord's sake, for well-doing, for righteousness' sake, as Jesus says, for righteousness' sake, and the thing that counts for God and gives us treasure in heaven, that's something to rejoice about, right? Actually, Jesus said... Be exceedingly glad. And in Luke, he, he says, jump for joy. Jump for joy. It is so unnatural. Again, I'm going to repeat this. It is so unnatural. It is supernatural because it is of God. And when the people that do not know God see the supernatural in us, they say they sit back and it shocks them. They say, wow. So otherworldly. Yes, it is otherworldly. It shocks people into conviction of sin a lot of times, doesn't it? And we would pray that it would shock them right into the kingdom of God. In closing, I like to... Um, we're going to pick up next week on this verse. But notice verse 21. Just verse 21, not the whole verse, but verse, just part of the verse. verse uh, a. This calling refers to an effectual call. He says this, For you have been called for this purpose. For you have been called for this purpose. Remember? It's a calling. It's a vocation. This calling is an effectual calling. It is effective. And all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer persecution. That's what Scripture says.
the world just does not like Jesus Christ because He's an offense to their life, to their sin. But He's a great Savior, isn't He? And He's the only one that can save them. Spurgeon says, if you don't find salvation in Jesus Christ, you're not going to find it in none other. There is none other. Salvation is only in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Let me give you um, a wonderful, practical illustration by Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrated in the value of Christians submitting to God for His purpose. The rigor of discipline and trials in everyday life as follows. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, We are all like the schoolboy who would like to evade certain things and run away from the problems and test. How true that is. But we thank God that because He has a larger interest in us and knows what is for our good, He puts us through the disciplines of life. He makes us learn the multiplication table. I remember crying about learning the multiplication table. We are made to struggle with the elements of of grammar. We are made to struggle with the elements of grammar. And many things that are trials to us are essential that one day we may be found without spot or wrinkle. End quote. Isn't that so true? Those who suffer for the Lord's sake with the right attitude will be blessed in this life and will be honored later in eternity in the presence of the Lord when we behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and then, and then we will see it will be worth it all because He's worth it all. And I like what one old missionary said, my sacrifices and all that I do for Jesus is nothing in comparison to what He did. I amen that all the way. It helps us gain the right perspective, doesn't it? He will be worth it all. Jesus will be worth it all. Look at what He did on the cross. Look at how He loved. Never more like Jesus Christ when we love as He loved and forgive as He forgave. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just praise You and we thank You for this great wonderful, supernatural love. Thanks be unto God for this unspeakable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we think about, as we spoke about David, he had the right attitude before you. And Lord, we would pray that we would have this right attitude before you as he did. He had all the rights and yet was a fugitive. He was mistreated. He was threatened. He was wandering alone and in danger, he had every opportunity to grab his rights. He could have done it, but he didn't. He could have killed his enemy, and he didn't. He could have taken the throne by which he had been rightly fully given, and yet he would not do it. Instead, he bowed before the king, bowed before him, and respected his office for your sake. Because, Lord, it was You that placed Him there. Lord, I would pray, help us today. Help us to be submissive like that. To have an obedience before You. Before You, O Lord, for Your sake, for Your name's sake. Let us remember that we are representing You, Lord. Realizing that You have ordained this. You are the sovereign Lord over all. You are on the throne. So, Father, help us to see this. Help us to remember as Lord as life is, some are kind and gentle and some are unreasonable and perverse. Bosses, help us to be submissive to all, but most of all be submissive to You. Maintain a good testimony for Your name's sake and help us to serve our earthly employers as if we were serving Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this for His name's sake and for Your glory. And may the world know, Lord, that we are most concerned to live a Christ-like life 
and humility and love that we may reach them evangelistically, even the worst of sinners, even the worst. Help us, Lord, to take and look for these opportunities and these privileges to suffer for Your name's sake, if it be so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.